So I absolutely loved that update uh, from Ozzy and uh, our Riverside campus um, because Hansi and I actually started that campus in 2017. Uh, we moved from Northern California to Southern California and started that campus with South Hills uh, and then left there, handed that off to Ozzy and his wife and the team there to move here to start this campus. And, uh, and so I'm super stoked for them. Uh, that they are getting their building and a little bit jealous uh, because I am ready uh, for us to be in a building. So we have, we've planted three churches uh, in the last, gosh, well, since 2007. So whatever that math works out to be. And, uh, and none of them were ever in a building. And so I have only pastored churches that did set up and tear down. And my back can't take it much more. Uh, So I would love for us to be able to get into a a building. Uh, Somebody was asking me earlier, like, what's the obstacle? What's the biggest obstacle to us getting in a building? And and, and the truth is, money, that's the biggest obstacle. Uh, We have an amazing church, and so our church actually stands behind us and uh, is the financial backing to help our campuses get into buildings uh, and to take that step. Uh, But there's certain financial parameters that each of the campuses has to meet in order to take that step, and we just haven't met that. So even though we've been looking and we're trying to find it, like we're, we're sort of operating on faith that as soon as, you know, we get there, like we'll be reaching that. So if this is your church, if you, this is the place that you go, if you consider this to be your church uh, and you're not currently giving or not, you don't give regularly, man, I just want to invite you to jump in and be in a part, be a part of it. Because in addition to all of the sort of intangible things that happen when you give, um, the real tangible stuff like providing buildings and a, a place for us to have church and all that stuff uh, happens because of the generosity of people that are right here in our campus. And so um, hopefully not too distant future, that will be us on a video and we'll be partying and saying, hey, you can be like us and have a building too. Um, so that, that's awesome. Well, if you're just joining us uh, this morning, you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, um, we've been talking all month long uh, about this idea of resilience, uh, which is really a combination of tenacity to persevere uh, and the ability to sort of recover when life is hard, also with the capacity to be stretched and kind of bounce back and the ability to learn and adapt and adjust when things get really, really difficult. And this has been such an important series because life, well, life really is hard. It's not easy. It's hard for everybody. And the world that we live in is constantly shifting, constantly changing. And what's interesting about this conversation when it comes to being resilient is that it's almost never a really big thing that takes us out. We're usually ready for those. We usually see them coming. We're usually sort of amped up, prepped up. We've sort of done the, home, you know, done our, the, the, the homework to get ready for those. But instead, what usually happens is we wear down over time and resilience is drained slowly, drip by drip, like a, drink, like, like a dripping faucet. And that's what usually takes us out. And on the outside, it looks like, you know, all of a sudden somebody quit and became disillusioned and just sort of got stuck. But most of the time, it was the accumulation of a thousand different little pains and struggles and disappointments and setbacks and heartaches that just sort of accumulated over time. And so how do we keep that from happening? How do we rise above? How do we overcome? And beyond that, how do we move past just sort of making it through the day, just sort of getting through the hard times to actually live a life and do something meaningful in the world? Now, if you're not a church person, it might be surprising to you, but it's actually a conversation that God repeatedly has 
with people in the scriptures. He's constantly talking to us about persevering and overcoming and having endurance and forgetting the past and focusing on what's ahead and being strong and having courage and don't, not growing weary and not giving up. He's always talking about that kind of stuff. In fact, in, in a couple of verses in the book of Romans, we're gonna right out of the gate dive into the scriptures. So in Romans chapter five, verse three, it says this. It says, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope and hope doesn't disappoint it doesn't let us down it doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts and so it's going there's this amazing chain reaction that's produced in our lives by resilience and so at the core of this whole series is really the idea that being resilient isn't just a matter of luck or genetics or personality that some of us are stronger or we're just born with more of it, but it's something that all of us can grow into in our lives. It's a muscle that we can develop. And so if you haven't been here in the first couple of weeks, I really want to encourage you to go back, grab the podcast and get caught up because there's some really, really important stuff that I hope that you'll do grab onto from the last couple of weeks. So I don't know, have you ever decided to do something in your life whether it was to take a risk or try something new or get out of your comfort zone, but then the, the skeptic or the cynic or the coward or the couch potato in you came along and talked you out of it. Has that ever happened to you? Or, or at least they, they tried to talk you out of it, right? Like it happens all the time. So um, we, I spent most of my life in Northern California and uh, I love whitewater rafting. And so we'd regularly go um, down the, the South Fork of the American River. And, and depending on when you go, you know, it's mostly class twos and threes. But if you go early in the season, the water flows higher. You can get some good class fours in there. Um, and, and it always cracked me up, um, the names of the rapids. You know, there was like Satan's cesspool. I'm like, who named that? Like, you know, uh, and then there was the son of Satan, uh, which I was just like, you know, you missed an opportunity. It could have been Satan's spawn. Sounds way more sinister. Um, and like, he's trying to pull you on. I don't know. It just, it could have been better. Uh, and, and there's one called hospital bar. And, you know, like, I'm just like, who's naming these things? Uh, but there is this one part where you can sort of pull over and, 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 and um, there's this place where you can jump from this rock down into the river and it's appropriately named Jumper's Rock. And so uh, you can climb up there and I don't know how high it is, but when you're in the water and you're looking up, it does not look very high. But when you get out of the water and you climb up there, it looks way higher than you thought. And so one year I was with my brothers, we decided to, to, to pull over and to, to jump off of Jumper's Rock. And, uh, and the water level was lower, so it was even a little bit higher. And so we climbed up there. And, and, and it's a pretty treacherous climb, especially because you're all wet. You've been in the water. And so um, we get up there, and I, I walk over, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Who talked me into this? Like, I decided to do this. And then I went, realized, like, there's no going down. There's no climbing back down. It's way too dangerous to climb down. And so I'm, like, sitting there trying to think about it. And I was like, my, my little brother, uh, I have a brother who's 10 months younger than me. We're very close. And I was always the brains of the operation. He was always the brawn. So I was like, hey, Bo, why don't you go first? And he was like, all right. And he just, woo. And I thought he was going to be all scared like me. No, he just jumped right off. And I was like, 
oh my gosh. So I'm standing up there and everybody's like, do it, come on. I was like, oh my gosh. And I was terrified. I'm happy to report that I went ahead and jumped because I didn't have a choice. I was either going to live on Jumper's Rock or I was going to jump off and continue with the, the rafting trip. But has that ever happened to you where you want to do something, you're trying to do something, you want to take a risk, you want to get better, you want to grow, but then fear or you know just apathy or something else comes along, lazy and whatever, and it's just like, no, you're not going to do that. I mean, we all have those moments, right, where you were going to talk to the girl or you were finally going to tell them how you feel or you were going to share your art or your music or your writing with the world or you were just going to do something a little bit more mundane like start serving at church or turn out the lights during the sermon or go back to school or get healthy or start a business or foster a kid or make God a bigger part of your family and your life and your finances and your decisions. But then some other part of you sort of piped up and told you, you know what, you need, just need to settle down, you need to be reasonable, and it just gives you all these reasons why it wouldn't work, and why it's a bad idea, and why you should just not do it. Well, one of my um, favorite Disney movies uh, is the movie Inside Out. Anybody seen that movie? Yeah, it's a fantastic movie. Uh, if you've seen it, you know that inside the mind of the main character, which is a little girl named Riley, are all of these animated representations of joy sadness, anger, fear, and disgust. There they are. Um, and my wife and I, when we were watching this movie, we both realized simultaneously in the movie that I'm joy and she's sadness. And, um, and as the movie was progressing, I was feeling pretty superior about that because joy seems way better than sadness until in the, spoiler alert, in the movie, sadness saves the day. Sadness is the hero. And then I was like, well, that's a terrible way to end this movie. But throughout the movie, joy and sadness and anger and fear and disgust, they're all arguing and wrestling over who's going to control the command center that dictates Riley's actions and reactions. Because ultimately what Riley does depends on which voice is calling the shots and pushing the buttons and pulling the levers inside her mind at that time. Now the problem in the movie, of course, is that each of those voices only has partial information, and they certainly have a very limited perspective. Well, as it turns out, there's actually a good deal of psychology and sort of neuroscience that shows that that's not a bad depiction of what's really going on internally for all of us at any given moment, that we all have this never-ending conversation going on inside of us with these competing voices fighting for our attention and trying to drown out the other voices. And the most confusing part, the most challenging part of it is most of those voices are us. You didn't know you had that many personalities, thoughts, voices inside of you. So in fact, there's actually one body of research that's identified at least five primary voices that they, they put out there like, you know, we all seem to have these five basic primary voices that are integrated into our ongoing self-talk conversation. See if any of these sound familiar to, do, to you. So the first one they called the faithful friend. This is, this is the voice that's comforting and supportive and is there for you. Um, the second one is the ambivalent parent. This is the voice that lectures you and second guesses everything. And the third voice is the proud competitor. It's driven and challenging, and it's mostly unsatisfied with your effort, and it's frequently disappointed with your performance. Then there's the calm optimist. 
That part of you is encouraging and positive and looks for the best and tries to find the best part of what's going on. Some of you are like, yeah, I don't think I have that voice. And then the fifth one is they called the helpless child. It's negative, it's afraid, it catastrophizes everything, it's powerless, it's just a victim. And I don't know what things are like for you, but for me, sometimes the discussion in my head with all of those different voices is civil and it's reasonable and there's friendly exchanges of points and counterpoints and arguments that are going on. And other times it's a full on like bar brawl inside of me with yelling and screaming and very little logic and there's trash talking and somebody's going to get sucker punched and there's going to be cheap shots and all kinds of things going on between those voices. And when we're uncomfortable or in risky situations or high stakes situations, the various voices inside of us, they shout louder and louder and louder, trying to get you to adopt their perspective and react accordingly. Now, you probably already know this. We all tend to listen to one of our internal voices more than the other, right? Not because it's right, not because it always knows what's best for us, but because it fits most closely with what we believe to be true about ourselves. See, if you see yourself as a powerless victim of your circumstances, well, the helpless child will be your dominant voice, especially when life gets hard. If your identity is wrapped up in what you can accomplish or what you've achieved, the proud competitor will drive your internal conversation. And the truth is like our internal voices obviously have a massive impact on our resilience because all of us process all of life in the form of a story. And the story that's going on inside of us is how we get our bearings. It's how we position ourselves in the world. It's how we figure things out. It's how we bring our world into order. It's how we make sense of the world around us and of our life events. It shapes our perceptions and our hopes and our expectations. It tells us where we stand and what to do next. And the story is being shaped and driven and informed by all of those internal voices. This is why you've had experiences where you're talking to somebody that you love, somebody that knows you, but you say something and they take it completely differently than what you intended it because they have a story and they attached meaning and they fit that comment or that statement into that story and it meant something completely different than what you had intended because the story is driving their perceptions and their expectations and how they're going to respond. So we've been looking all this month during the series at an Old Testament story of a guy named Gideon who was in a pretty bad situation, not just him, but the rest of his people and the people of God. And so God shows up and is like, yeah, things are pretty bad, but they're not just bad for you. They're bad for all of, all of my people. So get up. I'm going to help you, but I want you to help them. And as we read some of the story today, I want you to notice how the conversation that he has with himself throughout the story is actually shaping and informing the story and how it unfolds. And so maybe you're, you're going to notice here in a second and you're going to wonder like, wait, how do we know what he's thinking? Which is a good question. And we're actually going to read some of the back and forth of the conversations that he has with different people in the story, which really gives us a window into his thinking and the internal discussions because Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. He says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. 
Right? And so Jesus is saying, look, for better or for worse, whatever comes out of your mouth is a result or a reflection of whatever's rattling around in your heart and mind. In other words, your inward discussions are going to, are going to determine your outward conversations. And so with that in mind, let's look together at Gideon's story. We're going to begin and back up a little bit in the story, and this will sound familiar if you've been here the last couple of weeks. Uh, but I just want to remind you of how some of these conversations unfolded. So in Judges chapter 6, God shows up and is like, hey, this is what I want you to do. God is with you. I'm with you. In verse 13, Gideon responds and he says, if the Lord is with us, why has any of this happened? Why has all this happened to us? Where, where are all the, the wonders our ancestors told us about? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord has turned the Lord the Lord turned to him and said go in the strength you have and save Israel am I not sending you verse 15 Gideon replied but how can I save Israel my clan is the weakest and I am least in my family sounds a little bit like the helpless child speaking right I don't have any power. This is all just happening to me. I don't have a choice. Don't you know that I would do something if I could? There's nothing that could be done. But God begins to walk him through it and he begins to move forward and he starts making preparations and making some changes and he does some stuff with his family and he starts surrounding himself with different people and he starts building an army, which is what we talked about last week. And finally, they've reached the point where it's time to actually do something. It's time to take action and go and fight. And so in Judges chapter seven, verse nine, it says this, that that night the Lord said, the Lord appears to Gideon, comes to Gideon and says, get up, go down into the Midianite camp for I have given you the victory over them, which is amazing. Now, based on just the little bit you know of the story so far and what Gideon said before, what do you think his response was? Well, let's take a look because God continues talking in verse 10. He says, but if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. And so Gideon, <laughs> he didn't have to do this. It was just if he was afraid. So Gideon immediately gets up, took Pura, and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this amazing because God knows exactly what he's thinking. God knows exactly what he's feeling. God knows exactly the conversation that's going on inside of Gideon, what all the voices in his head and heart are screaming at him. And so he says, if, he's like, if, if you're afraid, if I'm afraid, of course I'm afraid. If you're afraid, you can do this. And it's almost as if while God's still talking, Gideon's like on his way down there to do the thing that God says will help him not be afraid. And I love though that God doesn't just throw up his hands in frustration because he's scared. He doesn't shame him or scold him for being afraid. He also doesn't try to just hype him up or talk him out of it. Like, no, come on, man, you got this, let's go. No, he doesn't do any of that. He just gives him a way to address it. And so to his credit, Gideon does the thing that God says, and he goes down to the camp. Now, here's the thing. It, it doesn't completely silence the voice of fear in Gideon's heart, but it does actually amplify the voice of courage and faith. It, it does actually bring to the forefront in his own heart a different voice, a different conversation. 
Because faith isn't the absence of fear. It's actually the courage for us to move forward even in the presence of fear, even in the face of it, even when it's all around us, even when we have good reason to be afraid. Gideon had really good reasons to be afraid. Faith means trusting and following God's voice over all of the other voices. And so Gideon and his servant head down to the Midianite camp and their army is so massive, it tells us that it's too big for them to count that they had so many camels, it was like sand on the seashore. You couldn't count them. And they sneak up to one of the edges of this massive military encampment. And this is what happens in verse 13. Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. And the man said, I had this dream. And in my dream, a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. And it hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat His companion answered, your dream can only mean one thing. God has given Gideon, the Israelite, victory over us, over Midian and all of its allies. Now, I know when we read the Bible, we read it as if it all is supposed to make sense, that everything, but for me, this is a hilarious moment. I mean, first of all, who hasn't woken up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat from the old barley bread nightmare. I mean, we've all had that one, right, guys? Like the barley bread rolling down the hill and knocking down your house. I mean, it's terrifying. And, and, and I'm no dream interpreter, but it actually seems like there kind of is more than one way you could interpret that dream. No doubt about it, it's a weird dream. But honestly, it doesn't actually matter what the dream means. It only matters what these soldiers thought it meant And what they read into it, what they believed it meant, made them afraid. See, you have to be careful of the voices that you listen to. You have to be careful who you let influence the narrative. Because the story that you tell is at the core of resilience. It's at the core of your ability to stick out and stay on the path that you're wanting to live which means that the information and the voices that you listen to will determine how resilient you actually are. See, because people will interpret the events of your life and they will give them meaning that may or may not be true. And they'll be like, this is what that means. And this is what you should do. And this is how that, this, oh, that happened to me. Or, oh, I had that dream. Or, oh, I wanted to do that. Or though they responded that my husband said that to me once. I had a best friend that did. And this is what, and they'll just tell you everything that that means. And that may or may not be true. They'll project their fears and their baggage onto your story and feed into and magnify the internal voices in you that may or may not be healthy or helpful or or really stepping out in faith and living and being the kind of person you want to be in that moment. And the next thing you know, you're scared of a loaf of barley bread. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Those words were written centuries ago, centuries before Jesus in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word that gets translated into the English as heart is actually referring to our mind, our thoughts, our emotions, our understanding, our will, In other words, he's talking about the statements and the voices that you listen to and give priority to in your life. And God's going, look, you're the keeper of the conversation that's going on in your soul. 
You better be super careful about who you let into that conversation. You gotta be super careful about where you let that conversation go because it will determine the course of your life. And so here's the principle, here's the the rule of resilience, if you will, and, and that is how you handle adversity will always be a reflection of what you say to yourself most frequently. What are the the tapes that play in your mind? What are the statements? What are the the thoughts? How are you interpreting things? What what are the voices saying over and over and over again? That that will determine your ability to handle life when it gets hard. What you hide in your heart determines how you handle fear and disappointment and struggle. Because we all have an internal voice that'll try to talk us into or scare us into quitting. It'll tell us that we should be exempt from this pain, that our life should be easier than it is, that it's just all too hard, that that's not worth it. It will try to convince us that we've endured all we can. We can't take any more. God has abandoned us. We might as well quit. But guard your heart. You're the keeper of the conversation in your soul. You can't control every thought, but you can control what you think about. You can't help it if a thought comes into your mind, but you can help it if you grab onto it and hold onto it and start listening to it. You can't silence all the voices, but you can steer the conversation. So um, I'm not a runner. I probably didn't need to say that out loud. That's probably obvious. But I am a would-be runner. Um, I identify as one. I regularly dress up as a runner and go give it a go. Um, but I, I, a couple weeks ago, I read a post by an ultra marathoner, and I'm in no danger of becoming one of those. But this is what he said. He said, you have to decide before the race the conditions that will cause you to give up and drop out. Because you don't want to get out there and have difficult things happen and talk yourself into quitting. Because if you're making decisions in the moment based on how you feel, you will almost always make the wrong decision. What an incredible truth, not about running ultra marathons, but about life. See, because you and I, you're stronger than you know. And the only thing that can actually stop you from living the life that God created you for is you. It's not difficulty or setbacks or tragedy. Those things are hard. It's not how hard life is. It's you. And so Gideon and his servant, they sneak down there and they hear the whole dream conversation and they hear the interpretation that what these guys believe it means. And for the first time, Gideon realizes like, oh my gosh, we only have 300 of us. They have thousands, but they're more afraid of us then we are of them because God is on our side. And then what he does next is very telling. In verse 15 of Judges 7, it says, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. Before he did anything else, he was like, oh, oh my gosh. God, I, I didn't even... I couldn't even see what was happening. I couldn't even see what you were doing. Then he returned to the Israelite camp and he shouted, get up for the Lord has given you the victory over the Midianite 
hordes. I love that he used the word hordes. Hordes have never been used for good guys, right? It's only the bad guy army that's the hordes. And he's like, God has given you the victory. But I love that before he goes and he mobilizes his 300 troops, he bowed in worship. And I don't think this is an incidental detail. Because have you ever noticed how quickly your internal voice can switch from one extreme to the other? Like one moment, you're the helpless child. I can't do it. There's no hope. It'll never. And then something that you didn't expect happens and you realize like, oh, it's not hopeless, right? And then the next moment, you're the proud competitor and you actually did it. And you're just like, I, I knew it all along. Guys, look, this is what I do. I overcome hard stuff, right? Like you, five minutes ago, you were just like the guy that couldn't do it. Now you're the champion. And you're just like, I just trust me, follow me. I can help you, right? One moment you're telling yourself that you can't do it, you should just give up. The next moment you're confidently bragging to yourself about yourself because you got it in the bag. Well, Gideon actually in that moment wisely steers all of that internal conversation towards God. In fact, we're starting to see this as a pattern for him. He makes a sacrifice. You go read the story. He makes a sacrifice. He builds an altar as a reminder of what God has said and done. In this moment, he bows down in worship. And then when he talks to his men, he gives God all the credit. It's, it's not head in the sand, sort of knee-jerk religious response. It's a sober, self-aware assessment of what's happening. It's him taking responsibility for the internal story that's shaping the one that he's actually living. Now, I'm sure he wasn't thinking about it in all of these terms, right? I'm sure he wasn't like, oh, I need to take control. I need to guard my heart in this moment. I don't, I don't think he was thinking that. But that's exactly, I think, looking back what he was doing. Also, there, isn't there a, a big difference for us? Have you noticed this between knowing something and actually really, truly believing it? I, I've noticed for me, like, I don't actually believe it until I'm willing to act on it. I don't really truly believe something until I'm willing to put some skin in the game when it comes to the things that I say I believe. Because God had repeatedly told Gideon what he was gonna do. And I'm sure he had repeatedly told his men more than once what God had said to him that he was gonna do. But this is the first time in the story where it seems like everybody is starting to actually believe that it's true. This is the first moment that they're like, oh, oh yeah, okay, let's do this. Because at that moment, that voice, that voice of faith, that voice of belief, that voice of courage became louder than all of the other noise and all of the other voices. And it overrode all of the objections and overcame all of the observations and overpowered every other obstacle that was in front of them. And as you're going to see next week, something extraordinary happens. Now, the question for us this morning is, how do we do that? How do we guard our hearts? How do we mediate the conversation inside of us so that it's pushed in a healthy direction, so that it pushes us towards God and not away from him, so that it builds our resilience instead of bleeding it dry, so that it actually moves us towards the life that we want to live? Well, there, there's a, a few practical things that I want to share with you. Number one is like you get to choose your voice. You can actually choose which of your internal voices that you're going to amplify and turn the, the volume up on and which ones you're going to silence and turn down. I, I love what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18 says. It says, always be joyful, 
never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to think about those verses in terms of this conversation, because I think it it points us to this reality that these verses aren't just about our attitude, they are, but that there are also choices that we make that form the internal framework of our life that produces resilience. Because this isn't just like, be happy no matter what, guys, right? It isn't fingers in your ears, ignoring reality. It's not toxic positivity that we hear about all the time now. In fact, the guy who wrote these words, he wrote something similar in another letter in Romans chapter 12. Verse 12, he wrote these words, and I, I, I love, I pulled these out of a, a translation called The Voice because I just love the way that it, they put it together. It says this, it says, don't forget to rejoice for hope is always just around the corner. I love that. He says, hold up through hard times, through the hard times that are coming and devote yourselves to prayer. See, he's not ignorant of the reality. He's like, guess what? Hard times are coming. They're coming. They just are. But you can choose the voice. You can actually choose a path that's going to lead you through those hard times. That's going to help you hold up when other people are quitting, when other people get stuck. You can choose your voice. Secondly is this idea of just bringing the inside voice out. So you've seen athletes do this. They talk to themselves all the time between plays, you know. Sometimes it's motivational. Sometimes it's instructional. What are they doing? Well, most of the time, they're coaching and talking themselves through a hard moment, a mistake, a drawback, a setback. They're overriding that hysterical, unhelpful internal voice with a calm, helpful external voice. Maybe not so calm sometimes. See, we often think of resilience in only one way, that it's just putting your head down and powering through. But I can tell you from my own experience, it's way bigger than that because probably like you, I've been through some stuff that I couldn't power through. It was too big for me. See, I, I don't think resilience is just about powering through. I think it's actually about processing through. It's actually being able to talk through what's happening inside of you and bring all of that stuff and go, oh, okay, this is, because when you start to say things out loud, then you're like, oh, that does sound ridiculous. Why was I listening to that? Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 says, what you, what you say can mean life or death. Those who speak with care will be rewarded. See, your words have the power of life and death. He's going, leverage that to your advantage. Bring your inside voice out and just say it out loud. Stop listening to yourself. Start talking to yourself. Thirdly, don't just live the story. Tell it. This one's kind of related to that second one. Because here's what I mean. Sometimes it's helpful just to kind of step back to zoom out maybe even take on the third person in the story or assume the role of a narrator in your own life, right? Because then you can zoom out. You're not so myopic because when you're in the middle of things, you can't see what's what. You don't know what everybody's motivations are. You're not sure what to make sense of it all, right? You can't see clearly. So if you zoom out, 
You can see things you couldn't otherwise see. You can recognize that you're not stuck. You're not trapped. That you have choices. That the story isn't over. That this is just one chapter. And the distance that it creates takes some of the steam out of all of the emotions of a situation. That you can take a deep breath and step back and just process through what's happening. See, if you're in a difficult moment, like, I know this sounds absolutely ridiculous, but you come home, your husband, your wife, you thought they were going to do something, they didn't do it. Now your expectations, now you don't have dinner made, now, now what are you going to do? The kids haven't eaten. What, you know, like, is there a more stressful moment than that? Like it's 6.30, 7 o'clock, everybody, people got to eat. What are we going to, I thought you, you said we got to go to the grocery store, but why didn't you? And I told you and I texted you, don't you remember, right? And so you can go over in the corner and start this process of like, I don't understand. I texted him. I thought I texted her. I thought I thought we we're on the same page. I told him what to do. I gave him the list. I said to do it. They said they were going to do it. You know, you know, all that stuff. Or you can like zoom out and go, you can be the narrator. Randy came home. Dinner wasn't ready. He doesn't seem to be very happy about that. What should he do? Which way will he go? All of a sudden, I'm in a dumb sitcom, right? I'm not ticked off. Like so. Again, it sounds ridiculous, I know. But sometimes maybe we just need to take a deep breath and list off all of the overwhelming situations that you've made it through before and the reasons that you made it through. Maybe even write it down. Because as silly as some of that stuff sounds, it can, it, it, what you say can mean life or death, right? It can mean the difference between persevering and giving up. It can be the difference between having a big giant blowout fight about dinner or just coming together to solve it. I think the phrasing that the writer in Proverbs uses is intentional. He says, guard your heart. Guarding is proactive. It requires you to be engaged. It takes intentionality and vigilance and effort. It's a skill that you have to develop, that you can't let your guard down. You actually have to have your guard up all the time for you. Start small. Practice in situations where the stakes are low. Listen to the conversation that's going on in your soul. Figure out which one of those voices seems to be drowning out the others. And then choose your voice carefully. Bring it out if necessary. Persevere. Hold on through the hard times that are coming. See, the conversation that you're having with yourself is really, really, really important but it's only the second most important conversation you will ever have. There's actually a more important conversation, and that's the conversation that you have with God. I, I love the imagery that Jesus gives us in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. See, I think the most important piece of this, no matter if you're a Jesus follower or you're new to church or you're not even sure what you believe, that, that, that you actually take a moment and invite God into the conversation that's going on in your soul. And I don't know if you realize this or not, 
you don't have to be certain of what you believe. You don't have to be a Jesus follower to do that. You can just say, God, I don't even know if you're there. I don't know if you're real. I don't know what I believe. But I'm going to invite you, if you are there, to step into the conversation that's going on in my soul, to begin to help me make sense, to silence the voices that are not helpful, that are holding me back, that are keeping me stuck, that keep causing me to give up. And that you would be the voice in my soul, driving me forward, helping me overcome, helping me know who you are, who I am, and who you created me to be. So in a moment, we're going to pray. And this moment of prayer is simply an opportunity for you, no matter what you believe, to invite God, to invite Jesus into the conversation that's going on inside of you right now. Let's pray together.